and good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Laurent Landis. The late Patty Fink is running very late. She'll be back with us next week. Mm-hmm. Um, our guest today is Dr. Greg Kaysan. He has been with us before. He's a psychologist based in California, but he's licensed in both California and Texas. He's on the faculty of UCLA Clinical, or he is a UCLA f- Clinical faculty. Did I say that right, Greg? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Good enough. Reason we are having uh, Greg on is last week was National Suicide Prevention Week. So that's one of uh, the things that uh, Greg deals with. So let's just jump right into it. What are some of the warning signs of suicide? You know, the warning signs can actually be uh, very subtle to very obvious. And, you know, I want to say that, you know, we all... We often hear, I think, in the media about things like, oh, if the person has changes in their um, mental health status, they're um, becoming depressed, or becoming much better, more energetic, etc., using more substances, uh, becoming more socially isolated. We often will pay attention because we're seeing some big changes happening to the person. But I've always been surprised that some of the bigger uh, suicide warning signs are sometimes ignored or uh, poo-pooed by people around them, like people talking about wanting to die, Um, people actually giving away things they have or getting all of their things in order or saying goodbye to loved ones. And I think because we go into sort of a state of denial, like, oh, this can't be happening or you're not really doing it, Sometimes people miss the big, biggest warning signs of all, which is people talking about their own uh, plan to kill themselves. Hmm. Um, a friend of mine, uh, that somebody I've known since childhood, her son had just moved to Austin, and, um, and he committed suicide. Hmm. Um, so I met them down in Austin. They flew in from uh, South Carolina, where they're living now. Uh, and I met them to help clean out the apartment. And it was interesting the signs that uh, Scott's mother found. They were odd things that only somebody who would know someone really well would notice. She said, oh, he hadn't unpacked his coffee pot. And he had a really Uh expensive uh, coffee pot that made, you know, all kinds of designer coffee. And she said he he loved coffee. He'd always have it every morning. And to her, that was a sign something was wrong. Mm. Yes, uh, that is a very, that's very interesting, and you're exactly right. That, you know, she could spot something because she knew him so well that something is wrong and something is amiss. Um, How, that's, that's the point at which you start talking. You know, you're talking about warning signs. We see those things and we don't see them. I mean, we see them and they, they strike us as unusual. Mm-hmm. But we don't want to, um, we don't think that it's really possible that someone's going to go there. And so sometimes we don't say something. So you, it you, is you, important you, to say something. Yeah. Talking about warning signs, um, how do you know the difference between, and I guess I, I'm sure it's just varied, but how do you know the difference between someone who's really seriously thinking about taking their lives as opposed to someone who's just maybe calling out for help? And I guess maybe the two kind of interchange. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, by the way, I always take any cry for help as serious 
um, because it's sometimes you just don't know. And I'm, and I think anyone that's willing to talk about it or be more upfront or at least open about their desire to kill themselves, at least they're at a stage where you can intervene and talk to them. Because the thing I've often um, experienced and you know I've had people around me is sometimes you don't see it because if a person is very, very serious, they're not going to let on. Um, or they might do some more subtle thing. Uh, and, you know, I had a patient once who, who was making many, many gains in therapy. We, I saw him for several years as someone had been through a fairly serious trauma, very serious, and um, had made many gains and um, had gotten all the way, you know, we started to decrease the therapy. And I, by the way, I track his symptoms every week, you know, every, every time he comes in and I'm looking at the progress he's making. And I agreed, okay, yeah, let's decrease you know, down to every two weeks, and then he wanted to go once a month. And then he skipped one of the sessions, and I was like, you know, um, he had a good explanation, but I called him, and, I, you know, I said, you know, hey, why don't we make it, try to do it next session instead of just waiting another month. And uh, during that time, he actually uh, did actually try to take his own life, and it was a very serious attempt. And he, and he actually talked about that he, just he made it appear in many ways that things were getting much better and he just pulled away um, and did that with everyone in his life and that was a very serious attempt and I I've often seen that to be the case with people is that when they're very very serious you can't often tell now I, I did have once uh, somebody who it was in for couples therapy and all of a sudden he, he brought in something very precious of his and gave it to his partner and said, I want you to have this. And I don't know what light bulb went off in, but I said, uh, I said very directly to him in that moment, I said, are you planning on killing yourself? And he said, yes. And it was a complete shock. I mean, he had never talked about it. The partner was completely blown away. Mm-hmm. And, um, and basically we went from there. So sometimes you can catch it, but generally sometimes people hide it. Um, in Scott's case... He went to work all week. On Friday afternoon, he took his whole office out to lunch, and um, people from his office who came to help pack up the apartment and also just to give their sympathy to uh, his parents, um, they said they had just the best time at lunch. Uh, you know, Scott took an extended number of people out to lunch and then came home. Wow and took pills uh, to complete the suicide. Um, I, I, I was told that that was not that unusual, that once somebody has decided to, to complete their suicide, they become happy with the decision. They're no longer depressed. Mm-hmm. How accurate do you think that is? Well, their mood lightens, certainly. Um, that they, you know, they don't feel the burden and they don't, you know, when any of us are hanging on a, a difficult decision, when we finally make that decision, we generally feel a lift of, um, of the pressure that's on us. And I think because they have now a plan and they're, they're committed to following through on that plan, um, they no longer feel the burden of 
the future. Um, and and in his case, you know, it's, he wanted to make some final positive connections with people. And I think, you know, this is part of the tragedy of the whole thing. Um, people all had a great time and they all felt closer to him and more connected and, and chose to take his own lives and probably um, increase the amount of pain that they went through and just into his death and, and he didn't probably realize that he could have had something better on the other end. In his case, um, now he left no suicide note, and that's common, hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I don't know the the split, but um, there usually are some indicators. But you're right that um, uh, in, in all of the incidents that I've come across, um, there was not a note, um, but it's. It's a very interesting thing because they get into quite a delusional state that they think that what they're doing is actually good. Um, I know that sounds funny, but they, they will often think that the world will be better off, um, that people will get over it easily, and um, that you know, there will be some unburdening, maybe of debts, maybe of... Um, relationships or, or other kinds of pain, maybe emotional, mm -hmm. physical pain. Um, and so it seems like, you know, to many to be an option, a good option, but of course, the difficult one. To his parents, it certainly, his father, uh, when we were cleaning out the apartment, his father kept saying, Scott, why did you do this to me? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, the people who are around someone who's who who has completed a suicide um, feel a lot of guilt. Yeah, and it's really quite unfortunate because um, that's part of the damage that the person who kills themselves does is that they leave a scar that can never be healed on the people left behind, not only because they remove themselves from that person's life and that person, that parent, you know, he had probably had visions of having a lifetime relationship with his son, being able to love his son and being able to give his son a good life. Um, and then, you know, he sees this tragedy and, and there is something that maybe the person who's committing suicide doesn't realize they're actually doing something very cruel to the people around them to better the effect. Um, the guilt, of course, because the people left around think they could have or should have done something. And I think the darkest side I see is that sometimes friends or supportive loved ones sometimes won't be so supportive in those. They'll, um, Try to, they'll ask questions in such a way because what they're doing in their head is to try to position their own selves and their own lives that this won't happen to them. So they, it's like they're trying to ask questions like, well, you know, what did you see? He must have had these kinds of problems or this was going on or maybe he had this mental illness or bipolar disorder or he must have, you know, X, Y, or Z because often what they're trying to do is to say, well, it won't touch their lives. And 
I think what everyone sees who hasn't touched their lives is you often don't see it coming. Um, I know uh, most of us realize that uh, suicide is not something, it doesn't discriminate. It, it can affect and does affect any everybody, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, whatever. Um, but there are some groups that are more vulnerable than others. And I remember when um, there's just some people you think would never uh, uh, do this. Like I remember when, you know, um, Robin Williams died some years ago. Every That took everybody uh-huh. by surprise. Here's this yeah. famous actor, comedian, beloved. Um, seemingly has it all, and I don't think many people realize the battles that he was dealing with. Um, but what are, you know, again, I know it affects everybody, but are there some groups that are more vulnerable than others? Absolutely. It's it's actually a little shocking when you look at the groups that are affected. Um, first of all, 70% of suicides are white males. Mm. Um, so that's that's a very distinct group right there um and the highest rate of suicide is among middle-aged white males so middle-aged white males are the highest risk group for suicide did Um, not know that i know and i don't know why that's not a more public statistic it's certainly a well-known statistic within the uh you know people who look at this issue but uh i don't know why the public doesn't know that because i think it's a very telling thing now our highest you know, race uh, among race is, is white and Native Americans, uh, which is really fascinating. And then um, when you look at, of course, we look at the gay communities about three times, three to four times higher than the heterosexual community. Um, and then we look at the trans community being another three to four times higher than that. In fact, we look at with gay men in particular. Uh, approximately 12% in one study of gay men have attempted suicide in their lives. Um, that's not just thought about it. Uh, to mm. actually make an attempt is a much lower group because there's, there's basically ideation and then about a quarter of those plan and then about a quarter of the planners actually make an attempt. And of course, there's then, you know, whether you are, um, whether it completes or not or is you know, sometimes very circumstantial. And that's the part of the reason why we think it might be much, much higher with males is because they take more lethal means. Um, and like uh, using a gun, weapon, or, um, or hanging themselves, mm. which tend to be hmm. much, much more uh, lethal. Um, do we know why white males in particular and why middle age? <laughs> you know, uh, it's a it's an age of despair, uh-huh. um, and what what we often see is this is when people's dreams um, become shattered. Uh, often, divorce. I mean, when you look at smaller, when you even drill down even more, it's people who are veterans, uh, people who are working in manual labor, especially like mining communities and other manual labor communities have higher suicide rates. We look at people when they have physical, um, you know, uh, ailments that are caused by these things. We can look at the loss of job. We can look at the loss of relationship, the humiliation, the isolation. And so we see a community that is spiraling downward. 
so I think this is, you know, it's to me, it's, uh, I don't want to say the canary in the coal mine because it's a little louder than that, but there's definitely a, a very, very big problem here. And it's not just people who take their own lives. It's people, when we look at this group, and we often look at the younger white males who take the lives of others, um, I think this is, there's definitely a problem within this world. And uh, What do you mean, like murder suicides? Well, no, no, no. I meant like people who actually, you know, will kill other people like the mass murderers that we see, which are predominantly white males. Gotcha. Like Uvalde. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so uh, it's it can be all a very, uh, uh, it's a complicated thing, but we we really look and we see that there's a huge concern in this community. Plus, we often ignore uh, behaviors that people do that actually cause themselves to feel even more, or to cause themselves to kill themselves early, like um, overeating, substance abuse, um, alcoholism, and other things that cause them to spiral down and deplete their bodies and die earlier than they may have otherwise because of emotional distress. We need to take a break. We're talking to Dr. Greg Kaysen. He is a psychologist based in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, we're talking about uh, last week was National Suicide Prevention Week. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more with uh, Greg right after this. Hi, this is Candy Markham, and I listen to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. Listen. And this is Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Laron Landis. Patty will be back with us next week. Um, we're talking to Dr. Greg Kaysen, and we're talking about suicide and suicide prevention. Um, so ahead, so er earlier this summer, uh, or midsummer, I heard that New York, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you know about this, um, New York has become the first state ready for this new um, suicide line, uh, hotline, like I think it's 988, um, that, uh -huh. that will be uh, I, at some point like 911 or, you know, 411 across the nation. How, in, but there's other suicide line, prevention lines that have been around for a while. How successful have they been in actually preventing suicides? Oh, to me, the suicide hotline is is invaluable, um, and and I used to participate in some suicide hotline trainings back in the day when I was in graduate school, and um, I really am impressed with the model they use and how they train people, how they select people, and talk to people. And then what you see is when I deal with people who are actively, you know, in thought process and who do have distress. The suicide hotline can actually make a great deal of difference. Um, and I, I think also we're seeing that there are trained police officers. We, we you know police get a bad rap, and there are, there's some pretty amazing police officers out there, and I will credit a police officer for saving one of my clients' lives um, who went to the uh, Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco um, with the plan uh, to jump. And... Uh, this police officer saw her, came out there, and talked her down and brought her in and really turned her around. It, was, it wasn't just 
pulling him and preventing us from doing it, but he really made a very positive impact. Um, so I, I, I think that the work that the suicide hotlines do and that other kinds of first responders do is invaluable. And when we can't under, we should not underfund. In fact, we should utilize. Now, I, I, the 988 program, it's really kind of bugged me um, that people have been very disparaging about it on social media. And I think social media is, sometimes can be such a toxic place. Um, I don't know what you mean. It, I, everybody <laughs> there is so supportive of each other. I hadn't heard any negative comments about 988. Fill us in. Oh, you haven't? Uh-uh. Okay, yeah. There was a big, like, backlash against it in the first, you know, few days as it was sort of rolling out. The people were saying they called it, they got, you know, the phone got disconnected, there were long wait times, you know, it didn't um, supposed to connect to suicide hotlines. But you know what? There are going to be bumps. Right. But we have a, um, we have this all or nothing culture. You know, if something doesn't work perfectly the first time, we disparage it and say it's awful. And we go online to complain about it. Now, you know what I love, though, is I love someone who's actively complaining. Um, that's the person I'm not as worried about. The person I'm more worried about is the person who completely disconnects. Um, so I, I, I don't worry that they're doing it. I just don't like the fact that 988 was not given a fair chance by a lot of people. And I hope that someone um, doesn't hold back from calling it just because they think they won't have a successful experience. It does connect to standard suicide hotlines. It's not like it's a brand new thing. What it's doing is trying to make an easy way to connect to right. the hotlines. You right. to dial like a super long number. I think it's a brilliant idea. I'm I do too. I'm excited that it exists. Yeah. And it's in effect across the country? Not yet. Not yet, but it's rolling out. Um, so... Yeah, it's you know the nine one one went through this too. Mm -hmm. They had to roll out in different states. You know, and it might be coming to California. I believe it's in California. Oh, okay, okay, (laughs) okay. Maybe not certain parts, but I thought it was. Um, But the uh, but there are some places that are struggling with it. You know, my partner's father helped roll out nine one one in Texas. That was his whole job for the phone company. Interesting. In Texas, and you know, to hear him I talk well when I when he was alive, he talked about the difficulties, you know, and he got lots of support, but there was pushback and there were problems, um, and it really, you know, in some ways, I kind of think of those conversations when I hear about the ninety-eight issues. It will be resolved. It's just, you know, it's new. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. and you know, um, also I think it needs to be said for any of these. Um, uh, suicide prevention hotlines. It's not just for the person who's thinking about taking their lives. It's other people. If you know someone and you need to talk to someone, um, they they can call too. Correct? Oh my God! I'm so glad you said that. That is exactly right. Yeah, somebody who can who's who's um, just concerned about a loved one can mm-hmm. call and they can get lots of very good information. Mm-hmm. So it's a very good place to call. If you are concerned about somebody who's close to you and, and that you have access to, a partner or a family member, what should you do? You know, my number one thing to do, and my hook back to what I said at the very beginning, is just to talk to the person. 
um, to connect with them, to let them, to ask them if that is what they're planning. Um, you'd be surprised how many people will be honest. Will, will say, yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking about. And I think it's also important to talk with them, really listen to them, believe it or not, which may require you to sit on your hands a bit, really listen to them, what's going on with them, keeping them engaged and talking, realizing in that moment you're having a connection with them and that's your most powerful opportunity to make a big difference. And then I also think it's very important to talk to the person about what you what the, what the person who's thinking about suicide means to you and how how impacted you would be if they were to leave this earth and how you would be destroyed by that and i think that's the thing sometimes that can help people break a bit if they can start to see that it's oh this is not a good idea other people would be impacted and by the way i've had people who've chosen not to commit suicide because of things that I, it have surprised me a little bit, but about um, like they didn't want to leave their cat un- unattended, um, or something, you know, because it was some other connection, or there was some, and like my client who who talked to that policeman on the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. When you make a connection with people, it often can avert uh, a more drastic action. How would you start uh, the conversation with a person? I'd, well, you just start with where they are. Like, hey, what's going on with you? I've noticed X, Y, and Z. Just call out what you mm-hmm. see. Don't label it. Mm-hmm. Don't label it. But, you know, I've noticed, you, you know, you aren't taking my calls or you, um, you you appear to be disconnecting. And I just want you to know how much you mean to me. Uh, what's going on? And, you know, they may, they may not say it, but if you start to suspect, you know, I really want to ask you, are you thinking of harming or hurting yourself? Are you thinking of killing yourself? And, you know, something I do, just a, a way even to, like, soften that blow a little bit, is I often will ask, you know, are they feeling tired of living? Everybody feels tired of living sometimes. Are you feeling tired of living? Are you thinking about harming yourself? Have you made a plan to do it? Um, do you have the wep- you know the, the means to do it? Like, do you, do you have a gun in your home or a, a knife or pills? Sometimes when you find out people are stockpiling pills or that they have a gun, especially if they have a new gun purchase, um, then I would be more concerned and want to take more action with the person. And that could be including and up to uh, calling 911 having the person evaluated if you believe it's very imminent and that they need to be protected in that moment. So what would you say for, you know, if, if somebody's thinking about uh, taking their own lives and if they are willing to talk about that, it's usually they're going to talk about somebody's close to them, I would assume. But what would you say to somebody who, like maybe a co-worker or I'm a fellow student, somebody that you're around a lot, but you're not really close to them, but yet you are picking up signs that there are some issues. How would you approach that? Because they could, that's a thorny issue. They could um, snap back, you know, that's none of your business. Um, What are you talking about? Um, How how would you approach that? 
Well, they could snap back and say it's not your business, but if they're, you know, you could just make it your business and say I'm concerned about you, mm-hmm. um, and you know, or I'm a coworker, you know, or uh, there are many instances that you can kind of make it your business. But the, um, but yes, they might get upset. But I, again, I'm not too worried about someone who gets upset because if they're getting upset, they're that's good. Getting them angry at you is actually not terrible. Um, because what's happening is when people get very serious, they, you know, I think as David pointed out earlier, they, they people feel better. Um, they don't, they kind of disconnect from those things. So um, I wouldn't be as concerned about that because uh, at least you're calling it out and pointing it out, and mm-hmm. that might help. Right, and what we're comparing is somebody who might be a little bit annoyed at you and saving somebody's life. Yeah. And you if, know, I had a person once. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, if the worst thing that happened is that you're a little bit mad at me and I saved your life, you did the right thing. Yep. Yes, that's exactly right. And, um, yeah, I would rather have someone never talk to me again and be alive than um, to have killed them. Period. I mean, I would rather that that would be just fine. They could hate me the rest of, of time. And they're not going to. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Right. Um, and you were going to say something, Greg. Oh, I was just saying, you know, there, there are very odd barriers. We could, I could go off about this. I didn't feel too long. But I, the, uh, I remember when, when phone calls were a quarter and... Uh, and someone, you know, I, I forget what we were talking about, but I was training these um, counselors, and he said he, he thought it was um, wrong about having, I said, you know, having a quarter emergency, you know, phone call. He goes, if I don't have a quarter, he goes, I don't have a quarter, then I just wouldn't make the call, and I would just kill myself, <laughs> he said, because I wouldn't want to spend a quarter on a phone. And I was like, wow, so one 25-cent phone call would be the difference between life and death. It, you know, sometimes people are, um, they, they just get very irrational. Yeah. When he, we talked about it a bit. He actually came around. But I think I was a little thrown by that that 25 cents he was saying would be the, the thing that kept him alive or dead and that he wanted to keep the 25 cents and kill himself. Yeah, that twenty five cents isn't going to do him much good. Yeah. No, but I don't think people. You know, again, it's just not rational. Although they think it is, mm-hmm. like they have a a haze of um, believability. They believe their own delusion at that point. Right. I'm sorry to use the word delusion, but you know they're seeing the world in such a different way. It it starts to lose touch with reality because they lose touch with the importance of their lives in the you know, on the earth. Why is it so taboo to talk about suicide? And, and it is. It's not something that most people are just even comfortable having a discussion about. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting one because I wonder how many people, like when they heard your topic was going to be about suicide, they, they tuned out. I think it can be very emotional for people, and it's, and it's depressing. Um, and they start to, you know, get very dark about it. And especially... You know, some people, if it's touched their own lives, they might be especially interested, but some people might be scared to listen to the information. 
might pull away for some other reason. But why is it that way? It's just, you know, in our society, we have difficulty talking about emotional issues in general. And this is probably the most difficult of the emotional mental health issues. Um, because suicide is, is almost inexplicable to some people, where some people it makes complete sense. Um, but I think to other people, they have no earthly idea why anybody would do such a thing. So especially someone that they love and means so much to them. It's really hard to understand. Is one of the reasons that this is so difficult is that there's no one cause for suicide. You know, most diseases that people die from, uh, the COVID-19 virus caused Mm -hmm. certain symptoms that different people did differently, but still it caused the death. Whereas the cause yeah. of suicide can be anything from... It's uh, not as simple as just saying, oh, they were depressed. Right. Um, no, no. I, yeah, the causes of suicide can be extremely varied. Um, and just depression won't do it. There's a certain despondency and hopelessness and helplessness starts to take hold. Um, that that can actually manifest in someone having thoughts or feelings of wanting to hurt themselves. And then, um, you know, then they start to develop the belief that that is the better course. Uh, But, and then sometimes it can be very impulsive. And sometimes it can be like a accidental suicide. Um, Sometimes people are just trying to make a show of it. Like when I used to work in the hospital, people would take, um, alcohol and Tylenol to like uh, try to gain the attention of caregivers around them to, to show how in distress they are. So they're actually using a parasuicidal like a, a, a new behavior to show how you know that they're in a great deal of distress. But of course, that combination a lot of people don't know is lethal um, mm-hmm. because the Tylenol and the alcohol will then destroy the liver and then the person can die um, so we often saw those deaths in the hospital and it, it didn't look like the person was actually serious about suicide that they were under more you know distress and wanting to do a cry for help so there can be many different things going on of course they can be very impulsive there can be a debt issue there can be um, a love loss issue there can be you know other kinds of significant loss issues that sometimes people in a moment uh, believe that they can't or won't go on. Mm -hmm. So they choose to take that action. We need to take a break. Uh, Stick with us, Greg. We're talking more about suicide and suicide prevention. Last week was uh, National Suicide Prevention Week uh, in the U.S. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Lauren Landis. We're talking to Dr. Greg Kaysen, and we'll be back with more right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. We're talking to Dr. Greg Kaysen about uh, suicide and suicide prevention. Um, I think one of the things that is a misconception among people who do commit suicide is just how much it affects other people. Um there's a whole other level of guilt and anger and 
an emotion that goes with it. Greg, after my uh, husband died about four and a half years ago, we created a grief support group for same-sex couples who had lost a, a spouse. Uh-huh. Uh, and when somebody came in uh, who's when the cause of death of their spouse was suicide, whole whole other level, they were welcome to stay with our group, but we insisted they get outside help because we're not professionals. Uh-huh. We we just didn't know how to counsel them other than you're welcome here. We understand your loss, but in a way we don't. Um, and we pushed them to get counseling. Most of them have, one of them, a year to the day of his husband's death, he committed suicide, oh. which again affected the whole group. We're, we're there to help people, and it didn't. Uh, but he had refused to get any outside uh, counseling. Could you talk a little bit about what the emotions are and what you can do for somebody uh, who, who has lost somebody close to them uh, due to suicide. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the biggest problem is exactly what you illustrated there, David. Um, that is quite complicated, and we think and we feel and we see the grief in somebody, but what we don't see and what we sometimes don't give a lot of attention to is the amount of guilt they have that they didn't recognize it, intervene, or see it in the correct way to them because if they had, they could have prevented it. They get angry at the person for doing it, which is appropriate. Um, Very angry, and they're angry at a person who is in pain, and so they feel conflicted emotions inside. Um, They feel every emotion in the rainbow, essentially. Except, I don't know that positive feelings <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe not every emotion but every negative emotion is fair game um, and you know let, let me give you an, an example um, the one who ended up uh, shooting his own brains out his and I'm saying it just that way because his partner had shot himself in the head in the house and left it to his husband to clean up mm. oh my mm. You know, what is your reaction to that? What do you, how can you help somebody like that? Well, this is, this person, I mean, not only has the trauma of their partner's death and a trauma from suicide, but trauma of actually seeing that. And if he cleaned it up too, that's, it's, it's shocking um, that he had to deal with it at that level. And so the trauma that he experienced is unfathomable to most people. Um, this is what people see in wartime, um, and that's it's his closest loved one. So, yeah, I would be extremely concerned um, about him and helping him through this. And I'm sorry, sounds like you guys did absolutely the right thing, but sometimes people don't respond. Right. They don't. Of some of the other people who in our group who whose partners or husbands. Uh, completed a suicide the thing that we heard most was I didn't have a sign I, I had no clue I yeah. 
you know, and they, you know, and we asked, did they talk much? Did they, you know, would there be a? Oh yeah, we talked all the time, and there just was no no sign that this was going to happen. Yeah, I, I say the people that are most serious do not let you know. They keep it a secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I had a, a friend whose partner committed suicide, um, very successful guy. Um, and when the, my friend, this is before I knew him, but when my friend discovered his partner, I mean, he discovered him, um, he... Um, he then had to go through finding out about a world that he never knew about with his partner. Mm. That there was a whole secret thing going on in the background and that he never talked, although he, they talked all the time and had this relationship and did everything together and were a very prominent couple, he had no idea about this person, what some of the things this person was dealing with. Um, and it was part of the anger that he's still dealing with um, and going through and having to deal with his own trauma. So I, I, those are scars that never heal. I, I hate to say it quite that way, but, I mean, the pain that a suicide causes to loved ones, unimaginable. You know, we're talking about, uh, I guess, different relationships, and, you know, um different loved ones who, um, who, who've taken their lives. But, you know, it sort of made me think of parents who have lost ch- children to suicide, and particularly small kids. I am just flabbergasted at how many stories I've seen over the, I don't know, past 10 or so years of little kids. We're talking like elementary school um, yeah. who have taken their lives. It seems like it's always due to bullying. But, you know, I'm just thinking about, God, I don't even know if I really knew what suicide was when I was, like, in the first or second grade. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Why does it, seem, it seems like that these these suicides are getting younger and younger? Oh, I, you know, I don't know the statistic around that. I'm sorry, I'm not a child or adolescent person. So I, but I can, I can just say, I mean, looking back at our, um, you know, when you were a kid, when I was a kid, yes, bullying was a, a very real issue. But remember how big our world was, even though our world was quite small. And everything seemed so magnified. And we didn't have perspective. We didn't know choice. We didn't know that we could have a better life. Right. The It Gets Better campaign is a very wonderful thing. But it, to me, I'm like, well, that's great that they're doing that. And I hope people listen. But in a way, it's very abstract because when you're in the middle of it, it seems like there's no other world. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I was a little kid, I probably had some of the same dealings with depression. Uh, when I was a little kid, I used to plot running away constantly um, because I thought if I could just run away and I I could have a better life. Um, and... I am, so I understand in a certain way, um, and it was just pure, just time and luck that got me through. Um, but people, if they see no other option when they're a little kid, and then they have the means at their disposal yeah. and the knowledge and the where, wherewithal to do something, 
um, then it's going to be much more dangerous. Now, there are, you know, people do have mood disorders. People do have psychoses when they're very young. I mean, people do have real issues that we, we sometimes don't think affect kids. Um, and so that can only amplify the kind of things that they're going through. And I think we also don't talk about, you know, things like sexual abuse that usually comes from a person known to the family or inside the family. Yeah. Um, so if that kind of trauma and the child can't talk about it, um, that's going to cause them to feel like they have nowhere to turn and the world is not a safe place. So I, I think sometimes we just have to gain a perspective of what it's like to be a child and realize that the world is not as simple and light as we as adults perceive it to be for them. So I, I know adolescence is not your specialty, but um, would you suspect that some of the same symptoms that a parent should look out for, especially if they know that their children is dealing with, you know, some issues, um, or would they be kind of the same symptoms um, uh, or sort of some of the same warning signs that an adult who might be thinking about taking their lives? Uh, absolutely. Um, and you want to look for, you know, mood changes, mental health status changes, substance abuse, social isolation. Uh, have they done things like secure a weapon? I mean, you want to look for all those very normal signs. But realize, too, adolescence is a, is a period of very inten intense emotionality mm -hmm. that well, we all went through. And um, that things Get up. seem so emotional. Um, and you can feel quite despondent and you can feel quite angry at the world and feel like no one understands you. Um, and so the isolation can be quite profound. And I, we had a guy, we had a couple of people at my high school commit suicide. Um, and they, the two people that I, I knew were really kind of polar opposites. So you just didn't, one guy was relentlessly bullied, relentlessly bullied. And uh, I really didn't know him, but I, you know, I was aware because when you know someone is relentlessly bullied, you sort of are aware that they're around. Oh yeah. Um, I and I didn't know it was to the extent it was till after the suicide. The other guy was the very top student in the school. He was the he was. I went to a large high school, about four thousand. He was by far and away the best scholar, and you know, and that many students, that's, that's a hard thing to do. And he won all these state championships and was just an absolute brilliant mind and did that. Uh, and so we see and, you know, we can see in people who are in different stratas have different issues. And I think one thing that's kind of interesting, too, is sometimes you see in gifted people, you know, here and people who are bullied, but you might expect. But people don't realize the pressure and the harm that comes in them what people go through yeah you know and greg i know you don't want to get political so let's get political um okay. <laughs> a, a few sessions of the texas legislature ago we had a different speaker of the house and and he killed the bathroom bill because and he was a republican a uh, great uh -huh. guy uh, and he killed the bathroom bill because he said the death of not one child is going to be on my head I'm so I'm like how phenomenal. What a yeah, wonderful. yeah. He was a great guy, um, and voted on when when he was uh, voted on by the House 
unanimously uh, elected Democrats and Republicans. He was that well respected, and, and for good reason. You get from that one statement what kind of a guy he yeah. was. His integrity. Yeah. Um, Florida. This couldn't happen in Texas, I'm sure. Florida passed the "Don't Say Gay" bill. How does yeah. that affect gay youth? So okay, and, and in relation to gay kids who are thinking of committing suicide. Oh no no, it's it's profound. I I I look at bills like that and I think, what are these people thinking? They're destroying their own kids because they think they're protecting them. But just think of this. I mean, I, I don't mean to be so dramatic, but if we go into um, you now create an atmosphere where people feel afraid to talk about issues of sexual orientation, where it's considered wrong and bad, and it's now legally codified and wrong and bad, just like Lawrence v. Texas. I was there when, you know, sodomy was was illegal, and that played a big role in the, in the country, I mean, in the state. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, anyway, they, they peep, and now they're saying, oh, no, we're going to take this away. You have teachers now afraid to... to be open about their own sexual orientation, about their own lives. You have teachers who are pulling out of Florida. You have little gay kids who are just dealing with their own identities. And you remember, I mean, I, I certainly remember being I do too. five, six, seven years old and thinking, I'm different than everybody else, and I'm completely alone, and there's no one like me in the entire world. And I, the isolation and loneliness I felt was really quite profound. And that, that uh, I look at now having a world where they can say, you know, Johnny has two dads, and Susie has two dads, and, you know, someone has two moms, et cetera, et cetera, that it's, you know, we're now in a much more um, a wonderful world where people can look. There's a future. There's a possibility. There's something positive going on. And that piece of legislature, although they, they they kind of made it that you just can't indoctrinate, basically what they did is they created a fear and another level of legislation to say it's wrong and bad to be who you are. Because they're not going to stop people from saying, oh, I have a husband. I mean, well, a woman from saying, I have a husband. A woman right. teacher from mm-hmm. saying, I have a husband. Right. Or a male teacher from saying, I have a wife. It's just you can't talk about same-sex marriage you can't talk about if a kid raises their hand i don't know how is the teacher supposed to handle it kid raises their hand and says um johnny has two dads um what is is that natural and what do they say oh we can't talk about that you have to ask your parents about it they instantly demonstrate shame to the child yeah immediately here locally not dallas but in irving which is right next to dallas uh, one teacher was fired because she put up a safe space sticker on her classroom door. Oh my God! Because it That's, would it, it would make the other teachers feel like their classrooms weren't safe. That was the reasoning. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Make it make <laughs> make it make sense. <laughs> you know, it's, it, we're getting into crazier and crazier things. It's it's interesting. I think the New York Times today had a, an op-ed about censorship, and it was kind of fascinating. I, I would advise people look at it because it just talked about how we're um, the new tool of basically the weak, and that's I'm glad they said it that way. It's like people who are weak 
is to censor others um, because they can't stand up and sort of feel okay about their own opinion or understand that there's room for more than one opinion in the world. Uh, and I'm glad you said room for more than one opinion in the world because when you were talking about gay kids who are feeling like I'm all alone and um, I, I, I'm abnormal and see, I always in, I always felt like I was the one normal person out there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and everybody else was that. crazy. <laughs> I love you for that. See, that to me is wonderful. Like that's great. I'm glad everyone did that trauma growing up. And all of my friends in from elementary school on up through high school have since come out. So. I guess I was right. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you were. And who knows? I mean, what a lovely thing to have all kinds of gay people. I went to school with all these people from, you know, early age on. And, uh, you know, I know one other gay person in my entire school existence. Really? (laughs) Yeah, a lesbian who was actually a friend of mine uh, going all through elementary and high school um, and even college. So we, we were remain pretty close um but no one else and it took her forever to come out oh wow i I went to a a decent sized high school i think close to two thousand kids and god uh we know of at least 15 or 20 others who've come out since we've graduated well i'll let you know i have my 50th high school reunion coming up in a few weeks 50th wow How's that possible? I'm only in my late 40s. <laughs> you know how, I don't know how that math works, but, you know, good for you. It's called you new were, math. You were, quite, you, were, you, were very, um, you were a very precocious spermatozoa. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll let everybody know how many uh, gay kids uh, have, uh, or gay kids, gay people in my class have come out. I'm sure it's a great, large, larger than last time number. Um, Greg, we're out of time. I want to thank you so much. Thank you for so being much as us. always. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for having this important topic. And we'll be back with more Lambda Weekly next week. Have a good week. We're going out with some music from Sonia.